This is Law Disrupted, and today we're going to be talking about autonomous vehicles, that is cars that drive themselves, and helping us to understand autonomous vehicles. With us today, Charles K. Verhoeven, a partner at Quinn Emanuel, goes by Charlie, and Lee Papa George, who's head of litigation at Cruise, which is a uh, majority-owned subsidiary of General Motors. Lee and Charlie, thanks very much for joining us. Hey, John, good to see you. I mean, this is such a fascinating subject, but I'd like to begin with a question that a lot of people may have. It seems like for 10 or 15 years, we've been hearing that autonomous vehicles are only five years away. And it seems like they're still five years away, uh, maybe more. Can either of you shed some light on uh, why this, the availability date for autonomous vehicles seems to be uh, keeps getting pushed back, or so it seems. Uh, fundamentally, uh, they'll, they'll be ready when they're ready. They need to be uh, safe enough, certainly, um, but they also need to provide a user experience that people will want um, to use. Um, it needs, you know, in the case of the rideshare model, for example, it has to be in terms of uh, ETAs, trip times, routing, um, has to be comparable to uh, a human-driven Uber or Lyft. So yeah, along those two axes, both safety and user experience, uh, it needs to be uh, uh, you know achieve parity with uh, with existing op uh, transportation options, and um, it's that last few percent, right? Is it's that it's the challenge that's inherent in a lot of technology. Um, the first ninety x percent um, go pretty quickly, and the last fraction is the hardest part, and that's what we're struggling with right now. But I mean, do you have the sense that it's taken longer than people have thought that, that there were obstacles that people hadn't, uh, you know, people developing autonomous vehicles hadn't foreseen that have kind of stretched out the timeline? Yeah, it's, I think it's really that just dense urban environments are just very challenging. You know, we've made, we committed to testing in dense urban environments from the beginning. And, uh, you know, the, uh, what the roboticists uh, and the uh, AI and ML people would call um, edge cases are hard to solve. Um, and we're getting there. We're operating driverless vehicles in San Francisco um, at certain times of day. Um, and we're seeing pretty good um, feedback from our test riders. And we hope uh, to get there pretty quickly. But uh, again, predicting exactly when you're going to crack that last fraction of a percent is pretty hard. This is Charlie. Let me just add that, you know, this isn't specific to Cruise at all. I mean, Predictions were made by uh, Google's Waymo and other companies that didn't come to fruition as well. I mean, Uber. <laughs> I My personal take is the scientific concepts are all understandable and in theory should work. But where the, you know, there's a reason why we have the phrase where the rubber meets the road, right? I mean, <laughs> this is where humans interact and humans are extremely complicated and they do extremely complicated stupid things as well as smart things and they're not intuitive just to give you an example from back in the uh, trial i did in waymo uber i remember a waymo person telling me that they were implementing their uh vehicle their av autonomous vehicle and it would get to a stop sign and it would never move it would just sit there for 20 minutes while people honked at it and it would never move. And they couldn't understand why doesn't it move? The reason it didn't move, they figured out, was because human beings edge into that intersection to intimidate other riders without even knowing it. 
to uh, let them go first at a stop sign. And so we had to build that into the algorithm to make the autonomous vehicle act like a human and edge in a little bit. Uh, things like that, there's a there's a million of them. There's a gazillion of them. And, and I think that's what Lee is talking about with his edge cases. You know, it's just very difficult to implement uh, these concepts uh, in a very, very complex environment. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. You know, it'll never be harder to be a robot than it is right now. And um, uh, it is, it, you know, it's exa exactly right to say that human-like behaviors like nudging, asserting levels of politeness are all things that the cars need to basically um, uh, emulate in order to, you know, not get stuck in the environment, like you said, at that stop sign. I was in an autonomous vehicle and uh, it wasn't a cruise vehicle. Um, and uh, the autonomous vehicle honked at a truck. <laughs> like i'm talking to the person running uh, who's a safety person in the car i say does this algorithm know what neighborhood we're in <laughs> i mean seriously it's that kind of that level of of uh awareness that a human being has that uh you know unexpectedly might influence uh or or throw out autonomous vehicle off track. And the other thing I want to add is we're talking about human lives here, not computers. And so, you know, whereas uh, some degree of variance might be okay in a computer system that didn't involve human safety, there's no room for error at all in that complex environment. So that's a very difficult challenge. Well, let, let's talk about, you, you talk about algorithms and emulation. Obviously, there's a lot of programming and software and machine learning that goes into this and intellectual property, which is developed by companies like Waymo and Cruise. And Charlie, let's talk a little bit about what that intellectual property is in general terms and what's that, what that looks like. You, you made reference to the Waymo versus Uber case. Charlie tried that case, Waymo being the Google Alphabet uh, affiliate company that's been working on autonomous vehicles for, I'm going to guess, maybe a decade now. Um, and brought a uh, intellectual property. I believe it was primarily a trade secrets case. I think there was also a patent involved uh, against Uber. Uh, Charlie, can you talk a little bit about what the intellectual property is behind autonomous vehicles? So there's, with, with most industries, there's a life cycle. And here we're at the very, very beginning, even though there's been years of hype about autonomous vehicles, we're still, there's been no commercial product released at this point. Um, there's no damages if you were to sue a competitor because there's no sales. And so if somebody is using your intellectual property, uh, you know, the patent protections that you may or may not have are very limited at this point in time because this industry itself is in its infancy. That being said, there's very, very valuable intellectual property in all of these companies. And that intellectual property is in the implementation details of these scientific concepts. And so we're getting back to just what I was talking about, about the uh, knowing that you need to nudge into the intersection. There's literally hundreds of millions of these things that are developed by these different teams as they try to go from concept in the laboratory to something that works and is safe, but is also cost efficient and, and commercially viable. 
Um, and all of that's trial and error in this industry at this point. And so what we did in the Waymo case is we relied on trade secrets and the trade secrets ended up being uh, the Char more Charlie, could you, could you perhaps yeah. explain what a trade secret is just in general terms? So the difference between a patent and a trade secret is, is a trade secret, you don't have to file for it. You don't have to get a, get it issued or something like you do with the patent. So it doesn't take years to get the right to enforce. And the, essentially there, the requirements to assert a trade secret are um, relatively uh, accessible. You know, it, it has a trade secret has to have economic value and you have to have protected it. It has to be secret and you, you have to show that you've taken steps to protect it. Um, and that's really the, the two main requirements. Now, it's different from a patent in that if a defendant were to actually independently develop the same secret, then they have a right to it. So uh, unlike a patent, even if you're not first, if you independently develop a trade secret, then you have a right to it. So there are differences, but for, for litigation in this industry at this point in time, you want to protect your intellectual property, um, it would be a trade secret type of matter. And that's what we did in uh, Waymo is we went in on trade secrets. So are you saying that there, that patents in the autonomous driving field are less important than trade secrets? And if so, why is that the case? Today they are, but not long-term. I mean, uh, uh, today, uh, if you want to enforce your IP rights uh, that you have in the efforts you've made and the trial and error developments you've made and someone takes those things or copies those things, uh, your patents aren't issued yet. You don't have them uh, to the extent you even filed for them. Um, and the only way to, uh, at this stage, protect yourself is injunctive relief, not damages. So trade secrets essentially are there for injunctive relief. And so when we went in the Waymo case, it wasn't about damages, it was about stopping stopping the what we alleged was the copying of the technology, um, of the trade secret technology. And, and we succeeded in getting a preliminary injunction and, and then we went from there. So how do the trade secrets manifested? Are these, uh, you know, code? Are they algorithms? I mean, what are we talking about in real terms? So they're all kinds of things. They're, they're knowing not to do things because an unanticipated event happens. They're, uh, it could be something cool, like the example I gave about driving into the, uh, you know, having to nudge. Uh, into the intersection, but it could also be, hey, we found that this particular bolt configuration allows us to have a smaller form factor, and that allows us to save money on this and that and the other thing that uh, allows our devices to fit uh, better within the vehicle design or something along those lines. And so at first, somebody's like, what, you're talking about putting a bolt, bolt design? I mean, how's that New or unique, and you have to say it, it, that's confusing patents with trade secrets. It doesn't have to be new or unique to be a trade secret. It has to have useful economic value, and it has to be secret. And so there's a there's a variety of ways things can be trade secrets. There's also what we call negative knowledge. So and this is very important in the autonomous vehicle industry, extremely important. 
Um, a, a outfit could spend a year and a hundred million dollars going exploring a promising avenue that will solve some problems and reach a dead end. And all it takes is one employee who who leaves and goes to another company in one sentence. We spent a million dollar, a hundred million trying that didn't work, and boom, you just saved the company a year of going down the wrong path. So you know things like this can be extremely valuable uh, at this stage where people are still trying to figure out how to implement these these products. I mean, Lee, from your your perspective, do you agree that trade secrets at this point are the more important part of the? autonomous driving technology, at least more so than patents? Does that, from your perspective, does that seem to be the case as well? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I, I agree with everything Charlie said. It's really, I, I would phrase it slightly differently as, uh, as a matter of timing. So right now we're at, you know, in terms of what keeps me up at night from an IP perspective, the answer is both trade secret and patent, but trade secret is the more immediate um, exposure for us in our pre-commercial state. And then as Charlie mentioned, I think as soon as we start making money, patent will become the bigger source of exposure. So I guess Waymo, Uber on the one hand and Apple, Samsung on the other, are probably the two <laughs> archetypes. Yeah, both cases that uh, Charlie tried. <laughs> so, so yeah, so right now we, we do spend a lot of time thinking about what I call our trade secret narrative, which is that story that every uh, trade secret plaintiff wants to tell about all the measures they have in place to protect their trade secrets. It could be as um, as primitive as you know paper shredding and physical security at the front door, all the way to the more esoteric encryption of um, data at rest and all those sorts of things and access controls in between. So we spent a lot of time thinking about could we tell a good story um, uh, if we had to uh, uh, to protect our uh, our trade secrets. Um, the, the concern comes the other way as well, where, you know, we, we uh, as we onboard new engineers, there's a lot of movement around uh, the uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning community. We have a lot of former Waymo engineers and they have a lot of our engineers. So we try to have really good hygiene as people come in the door in terms of um, uh, being good levers from their old company and um, being pretty, uh, uh, pretty blunt about the fact that we're hiring them for their talent and not for what they know. Um, looking forward, though, you can't, even though I view that as our, our, our biggest source of current IP exposure, um, you have to start laying the groundwork for your future patent exposure. So we've got um, a couple of really talented patent lawyers who um, are in, very intentional about what we file for. Um, they're looking at what our competitors are doing. They're looking at what non-practicing entities are, are doing. Um, we're starting to form um, cooperative uh, defensive uh, organizations with others in the space. So if you know if you wait uh, uh, to, 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 to lay that groundwork, it's too late. Um, so um, that, that's why I say it's really a matter of timing. I think uh, trade secrets, the more immediate exposure, but um, uh, it, it's, 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 um, it's uh, also, I think, critical to be laying the groundwork for um, patent exposure now. I think I heard you say that you at Cruise, you have former Waymo employees and engineers at Cruise, and it may be the case that there are former Cruise engineers and employees uh, at Waymo. Uh, as you describe it, that sounds like a situation that's fraught for uh, with potential problems. Uh, what are the best practices if, on the one hand, you have an employee who you you know has had access to your intellectual property and is going to work for another autonomous driving company? 
how do you deal with that, the departing employee? And what is your, what should, what's your position vis-a-vis -vis the, the new employer? And on the other hand, the issue that you mentioned, you hire somebody from a competitor. How do you protect yourself from a claim down the road that that employee brought information with them uh, and that you use that? What do you, what would you guys say are best practices on both sides of that? And maybe, we'll go, Charlie, maybe you could address, pick either one, uh, address one of those situations first. Uh, well, I'll address uh, onboarding. So, uh, well, but, but let me say uh, before, before I go into this, that, that another aspect that's unique, at least so far in autonomous vehicles is the talent pool is very limited. This is a new technology. Uh, it's sort of a, a, you know, I mean, I'm sure Google would say it was a, one of their moonshots. Uh, so it was, came out of Google X initially, and Google proved proof of concept. And then the rest of the auto industry took, sat up and took notice, and competition started like crazy because if, in fact, you can do this, all the automotive, automotive vehicle companies realize that's game-changing. Totally game changing, and so the competition started with a very limited pool of, of folks that knew how to do this stuff, and and believe it or not, these are just engineers, and all of a sudden they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, because they just happen to be in this technological space that's really hot, and so um, you have to add that into the mix too. These are powerful individuals whose knowledge is very valuable at this point in time. And you have to balance that against, uh, against, um, you know, the possibilities that these few people might share concepts in, in a way that's not copacetic with the law, um, for onboarding. Did I say onboarding was good? So yeah, you said for people onboarding. Coming in, for people coming in, you know, you need to tell them, we don't want your trade secrets. We have no, you know, and you need to explain to them what they are. You need to have, uh, you need to, um, um, perhaps, I don't know, Lee, if we, you have people sign that they're not taking any or they're not doing anything just to protect the company. Um, and then before Lee goes, just generally, John, um, my view on best practices here is you have to create an environment within the company where the value of trade secret technology is understood is known, is, is uh, integrated into the pride of the people working there. So that, the, you know, a guy knows, I spent six months developing this, this algorithm and I'm proud of it. You know, maybe even incentive, just like in the patent programs, incentives for people who, who develop something that's trade secret and valuable. Um, you know how we have now, um, yearly meetings for employment discrimination and other types of things, I would go so far as to say we should start doing stuff like that with trade secrets in industries like the AV industry, where periodic meeting, there's a periodic educational thing where people have to attend. And because otherwise these engineers do not understand trade secrets, John, they do not. And, uh, you know, there's a common, uh, uh, misperception, especially in the software industry in Silicon Valley, that, you know, trade secrets are documents. Stuff in your head is not a trade secret. And, in, and that's sort of the default if you don't educate your engineers. And so it's very important when you're onboarding engineers and, and people 
um, and especially in the AV sector, that uh, you teach them about trade secrets, the value of trade secrets. Uh, once they understand that stuff, uh, I think that the attitude of the companies toward maintaining the protections for trade secrets may change more. I mean, in Silicon Valley, in the software industry, they hate intellectual property. The engineers are all anti-intellectual property. And so, you know, changing that sort of dynamic uh, within your company in the AV sector uh, would be a laudable goal. So Lee, uh, what's your perspective on that? First, uh, at Cruise, when you hire an employee who worked for a competitor, do you actually have them sign something saying, I'm not bringing any trade secrets and I understand you don't want me to disclose them. And how about the other situation where you have an employee who's going to work for a competitor? What kinds of things do you do to try to protect yourself? Yeah, well, one foundational thing is to have good relations with the law departments at Waymo and Zooks, which is a couple of our competitors. So um, having, you know, having a frankly, you know, cordial professional relationship with the other legal departments is um, foundational. To also echo what Charlie said, um, the competition for these software engineers is intense. Um, and, you know, a lot of them know each other from, uh, from academics, you know, there's a handful of really good robotics programs, Carnegie Mellon, and a few others. So a lot of these people know each other anyway, um, and all kind of are coming from a similar school of thought. So they're going to approach a robotics problem in a, in a comparable way. Um, which kind of goes to Charlie's point about they don't really view it as belonging to the corporation necessarily. Um, but the, the, the reality is um, uh, there is a lot of movement within the industry. There's fierce competition for, uh, uh, for these engineers. Um, so you do, you do, you have to manage the, the ebb and flow. Um, but uh, to, to get to your question, John, so on the, on the incoming piece, I think we have what, what I would consider to be a pretty industry standard approach um, we have uh, language in our employee handbook and people need to acknowledge receipt of that. We have an intellectual property rights agreement that, um, uh, that, they, that people need to sign on uh, upon onboarding that addresses both the confidentiality of our own IP and our expectation that, will, um, that employees will respect others' um, IP rights. Um, on the exit side, it depends. Um, that's a little bit more of a case-by-case -case analysis. Um, Sometimes there's enough movement where to, to, to send those strongly worded letters every time. Um, it, you know, my colleagues at Waymo and Zooks would start rolling their eyes at me. Um, but for certain, you know, for certain departures, um, it's a little bit of a note when you see it standard. We might send a letter both to the employee, uh, the departing employee, and the the um, the the law department of the the new employer. Uh, just reminding them that they've signed certain agreements, that they have these continuing uh, obligations to protect Cruise intellectual property, um, and just put, kind of put everyone on on notice. You know, it's that concept of sometimes if people know they're being watched, you can you can influence their behavior for the better. Do, do you try? Do you make an effort to find out exactly what their job is going to be at their new employer? Uh, you can ask, but they don't often tell you. Um, you know, uh, and for a lot of these people, you know, if they're if they're, you know, if if machine learning platform is their thing, um, to Charlie's point, this is pretty specialized stuff. In all likelihood, they're being hired to do exactly the same thing at the new employer. All right, Charlie, you've made a reference a couple of times to the Waymo uh, Uber case, which is undoubtedly the most important case that was that's been filed and was litigated relating to uh, intellectual property in the autonomous vehicle area. 
Could you tell us a little bit more about that case? What was it about? Uh, and, and what was the course of the litigation and how did it end up? Well, that, that was an employee movement case in the extreme. And so it involved a person who some in the industry would characterize as a rock star uh, engineer, Anthony Lewandowski. And, uh, you know, he was, he was, he grew up doing this stuff and, and, you know, was, I think he did, I think he had an autonomous motorcycle once that he, that he raced when they had those races in the early days, uh, autonomous vehicles. And he, uh, he was also very, uh, what's the word, uh, didn't feel the need to bow to corporate entities and he would do his own thing. He was a free thinker. Free. Okay. That's one way of saying <laughs> it. Uh, and, um, and so, um, Google or Waymo, uh, it, this is actually when, before Waymo was spun out. So when it was still Google X, but he left the company and, uh, and Google did the offboarding and everything. And he joined Uber and, uh, then the people people were concerned, uh, but there was no evidence to show us that he was intentionally stealing anything. Uh, and then uh, in December, after he left, a vendor for Uber accidentally sent an Uber part uh, uh, specification to Waymo because it was a common vendor. In other words, Uber or, or Lewandowski had gone to Uber and told them about the vendors that Waymo was using and they picked the common vendor and the vendor got confused and sent the Uber part specification to Google and lo and behold it's almost identical to the Google part the associated uh, Waymo part and that's when uh, the lawyers got called and we uh, brought in forensic uh, outside forensic help and determined that these, this individual had downloaded 14,000 files before he left. Uh, and then in, through the litigation, which was uh, trade secret litigation, uh, we, were, we went in guns blazing with a preliminary injunction motion and got expedited discovery and learned that this had been planned uh, directly between Lewandowski and the CEO of Uber. Uh, over a period of six months, and the plan was to set up a, a, a fake company for six months, and then Uber would acquire that company for a huge amount of money. It was very, very sinister. And uh, so we pursued along those lines. We won the preliminary injunction. Lewandowski ended up getting fired uh, and eventually uh, was sentenced to, to prison for some time. Uh, so, so it wasn't a fun thing, but it was something that adequately protect that we were successful in protecting Waymo and, you know, Uber eventually just abandoned the industry. So, um, you know, that was an example of if somebody, if one of these really high level guys who, who who's an engineer with, with amazing knowledge and experience decides, decides to try and take all of that essentially take a program from one company to another, this is a way that you can use your trade secret technology uh, to prevent the theft. We've been talking now about uh, intellectual property uh, in the AV area. Let, let's talk about some of the other legal issues that automated vehicles present. 
uh, you know, one thing that's always mooted about is uh, who's going to be liable if uh, a car that's driving itself uh, gets into an accident, something terrible happens. Uh, it's not the driver. We don't have a driver. So is it some software engineer? And then the, the question everybody always asks, you hear this all the time, you know, if the car sees on the one hand, there's a bus of children or there's on the left side and there's a human being walking on the road on the other side and it's got to make a choice. Lee, I'm sure you've heard this, Charlie, I'm sure you've heard this, you know, what are the programmers coding that car to do? What's the answer to that? <laughs> I would really uh, like to hear what I would like to hear once and for all the answer to that. Yeah, the Lee, trolley. what's the answer? <laughs> the trolley problem. Uh, I, I love a good trolley problem discussion. Um, so obviously that's an ethical dilemma that goes back, uh, I think, many decades. I don't remember exactly when it was um, first first posed. Um, uh, the, you know, my our, our typical response is, um, one, there's no satisfactory answer for a human driver. So it's a little... Um, it's not reasonable to expect there to be a technolo technological answer that's satisfactory. So it is by definition a dilemma. Um, and then, you know, the coding doesn't work that way. And I'm sure Charlie could probably talk to this as well. These, these are, you know, deep neural nets and um, the, the car through its various sensors is basically taking in, you know, I'll say millions of bits of information um, every moment and how that gets processed to a binary a control decision, I'm going to go, I'm not going to go, I'm going to nudge right, I'm going to nudge left, is a very complicated um, calculation. And it's not a hard-coded if old person versus three children, then old person. It's, 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 it's not an if then, then that kind of um, uh, programming decision. Um, I, I, so I, understand, I understand that, in fact, in a situation like that, or any accident, given uh, that it's a neural network that's trained itself, if you want to try to figure out why did the car make that quote unquote decision, it's impossible to figure out. You can't, you can't, uh, you know, trace the electrons back and figure out why it made that decision. Yeah. I don't know if I go as far as impossible, but it's very, very difficult. And, you know, it'll come down to like a weight between, you know, two of the layers or something like that, that, that maybe gate that triggered this, the different behavior or the different control decisions. So yeah, it's, it's, it can be very challenging. And there probably certainly are circumstances where you maybe you just won't know. Go I ahead, will Charlie. Say, let me just interject. I will say that my son is a freshman in college and he's taking a philosophy course and the AV quest, specifically for autonomous vehicles, is one of the primary questions they're dealing with in ethics right now. <laughs> Lee, how should we think about traditional uh, tort and negligence principles uh, as it relates to automobile accidents when it comes to autonomous driving? What's, who's going to be responsible? Or, or, or do we have, have completely different approaches to that in the AV context? Yeah, we, we, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about that. I, I tend to be a pragmatist. So I think in the near future, and by that, I mean, you know, years, we're going to be in the regime we're in right now, which is traditional negligence and strict product liability, probably design defect. Um, I think there's a lot of institutional inertia to keep that in place. I think the plaintiff's bar wants to keep that in place. We've got a handful of examples we can look at, you know, one of which was against GM. Uh, this was back in 2017. It was the incident, the 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 suit itself was I think it was 2018, where they uh, the allegation was just a very simple negligence theory. 
Um, you know, another good example is the Mountain View fatality. This was a, a Tesla fatality uh, at Mountain View a few years ago. Um, we, you know, took a good look at that complaint. Um, and not surprisingly, it alleges both a negligence uh, 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 cause of action and a strict product liability cause of action. And I think that's where we're going to be uh, for the foreseeable uh, future. Um, uh, you know, that negligence is the easy one, right? It's simply just either you put it, had a duty to put a car that could perform with an adequate level of competence or safety on the road. Um, you didn't, therefore you breached the duty. So I think that's the easy, that's the easy button for the plaintiff's lawyer. And then the strict product liability theory is kind of the stick, right? Assuming the, the numbers justify it um, and they want to hire that expert and really get into the code. Um, that's the, that's the discovery that makes the defendant squirm, right? You don't want to show the code. You don't want to produce the code. So I think it's that, you know, that combination of an easy way out and a, and a, and a relatively large stick, uh, will, will be the strategy that we're seeing for, for some time. What is the regulatory framework, uh, that the AV manufacturers are, are working under now? I mean, I've, I've heard about different levels. Uh, is this a state regulation? Is it federal regulation? And basically, what are the hurdles that that uh, AV company has to clear in order to put a car on the road? Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, it's the classic patchwork. Unfortunately, um, there's really three different layers that we're navigating. There's the federal layer, which is primarily um, NHTSA or the National Highway um, Traffic Safety Administration. Um, that's responsible for setting safety standards for vehicles on the road, the so-called um, FMVSS or Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards. Um, so we've got that layer. Um, then at the, at the state level, uh, the DMV is the traditional regulator of uh, drivers and the operation of vehicles on the roads. So we, in order just to be out there, we need to deal with the DMV. Um, and then if you wanna run a rideshare operation as we do, then you have to deal with the CPUC, um, the California Public Utilities Commission, because they are the traditional regulator of transportation services, including ride hail, as we know it, the transportation network companies like Uber and Lyft, um, and then also the transportation charter parties, which is the category we would fall into. Um, so you need to navigate those three layers, and each one right now is a, what I'll call a, a work in progress. I can I can walk through them if you want, but it's a it's um it's a it's yeah the, we're 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 building the plane in flight. <laughs> well, is there a problem with uh, consistency? Do you find yourself dealing with different regulators, state and federal, or different states that have different uh, views and different? objectives in terms of what they expect from the manufacturers? Yeah, there hasn't been enough activity to really produce inconsistency right now in some cases. And uh, in some cases, the regulatory framework we need simply doesn't exist. So for example, at the federal safety level, the NHTSA level, the FMVSS level, um, we have cars that don't have steering wheels, right? But the, you know, or don't have brake pedals. And the, uh, the safety standards say you have to have a brake pedal and you have to have a steering wheel. So the only reason, the only way we can test these cars is under an exemption that, that, um, uh, uh, that uh, came under the FAST Act. It's a infrastructure bill, but as a, a, a kind of a, a minor paragraph in a, in a very large bill, the, uh, the federal government said, okay, fine, for these new technologies, you can test on public roads um, without necessarily satisfying FMVSS. 
The only problem is you can't scale. Like we can't, we couldn't actually um, build enough cars to run a, a, a commercial operation or commercial fleet under the existing exemption. So we need new safety standards that simply just don't exist yet. Um, at the state level, at both the for both the DMV and the um, and the CPUC, you need a drivered test, a driverless test, and a deployment permit. And until recently, only at, only four or five out of those six permits existed. Um, now they all exist, and we have I think five out of six of them in pending application for the last one. So this it's more of an enablement thing right now than it is an inconsistency thing. How about uh, data collection? Uh, AV cars collect just enormous amounts of data uh, with all the uh, sensors they have on them. There's got to be concerns about, you know, privacy issues. Uh, where did the car go? What was the history? What locations? Uh, maybe even uh, what it saw, quote unquote. Uh, bystanders, uh, what did it, you know, that may be relevant to any number of things, maybe criminal investigations. Uh, that's got to be a concern too. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, the, the, the data that we collect and, um, you know, to your point, there's, there's, it's more than just camera data, what the roboticists would call vision data. It's also LIDAR point clouds and geolocation data and other things. Um, uh, it changes a lot. Um, it, you know, just to refer back to um, good old fashioned um, auto liability and car crash litigation, um, it kind of takes the red light, green light question out of the equation, right? We'll know, we'll have the data that'll tell us. So it, it arguably changes the way you approach uh, auto litigation, how you adjust auto claims for those claims that don't reach litigation. It's potentially um, a game changer there. Um, on the uh, both bystander and rider facing perspectives, there too, you're sitting on all this data and, and there's a lot of different uh, dimensions to that. There's a certain ick factor. Some people may not like the idea that, they're, um, that we're collecting that much data about them. Um, uh, there's certainly a, um, an, a legal exposure issue. We need to make sure that we are um, uh, managing and processing that data in a way that's consistent with uh, you know, the various um, state laws that are, are coming into effect, CCPA, uh, uh, CCPA, um, CPRA, uh, and, and, you know, others in, uh, in Virginia, and I think a couple of other states have, have privacy laws coming online. So we need to make sure that we're managing uh, uh, consistent with that. But ultimately, you know, we're trying to build a service that people will want to use. So we need to make sure people trust us and if we're perceived as uh, surveillance, obviously that, that undermines trust. So that's um, winning the trust base is a, something that we're really focused on and we're doing a lot of work to sort of um, explain our tech and get people comfortable with, um, uh, with these cars rolling around with all the cameras on top. I mean, there are now cars rolling around I, uh, in San Francisco, I understand, and in Arizona. What, what are the programs that are out there now? Where, where you have presumably operating under waivers, uh, where cars actually being tested and available and being hailed and people riding in them. Yeah, so for so so uh, uh, if you walk around San Francisco um, t today, uh, in almost all likelihood, you'll see a cruise car, you'll see a Waymo car, and you'll see a Zoox car. Um, there are others as well. There's Aurora. Um, there are cars that may or may not be Apple cars. 
um, uh, there, there's, there's a number of people on the roads testing right now. Um, uh, from a bystander privacy perspective, you know, we take the position that uh, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy when you're walking around in public. And in any event, our camera data isn't reasonably, um, uh, can't reasonably identified with an individual. So it's really no different than being recorded by a building security camera or a camera at, a, at an intersection. You know, I think the reality that we all don't have either, uh, you know, kind of suppressed to our subconscious is that every time we walk down the street, we're being recorded multiple times, you know, dozens of times between my apartment and the market. Um, so it's, it's really just more of that from a bystander perspective. In terms of our riders, you know, there we can actually enter into terms of use and have a privacy policy and make disclosures about what we collect, what we share, what we use it for, um, get consents where we need it. Um, so that becomes a much more manageable interaction. But um, it is an order of magnitude um, different in terms of what we're collecting. And, it, you know, at some point, something's just a bigger version of a, of, of a thing. And then at some point, it becomes so big that it, it becomes fundamentally something different. So we're, we're working on actually retaining much less of the data that we collect. Um, you know, in your R&D phases, you need it for machine learning and training the models and doing all that stuff. But in the future, um, we'll probably retain much, much, much less of the data that we're um, using to, um, to operate the cars um, and uh, either have uh, much less storage on the vehicle or in some cases, you know, quote, drop it on the floor. Like the car will use the data to make a decision in the moment, but not necessarily um, make a record of it or at least not all of it. You said these, you can see vehicles that may or may not be Apple cars. Uh, that's interesting. We've all seen in the press about, I mean, it's, it's clear Apple seems to be doing something and developing some autonomous vehicle product, but I don't think I've ever seen a picture of it. Are there, are there pictures of it? Yeah, you know, you know, for the folks who are really knowledgeable in the space, uh, we, you know, when we see like when I, we see Zook's cars going by, we can tell which lidars they're using on that particular car, and um, it's not always the same one. Um, so, uh, folks who are more technically savvy than me, um, you know, have educated guesses that uh, every now and then they'll see a car that's probably one of Apple's. So we're talking. Uh about a car that's a, a conventional uh, manufactured car, but it's got LIDAR or other equipment attached to it. Right, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, you know, we're using a Chevy Bolt, although in the future we'll have a purpose-built vehicle called the Origin. Uh, Zooks is doing the same thing. They're basically hanging a big frame on top of a, I think it's a Toyota Highlander, I think. Uh, but, but those sensors will end up on a purpose-built vehicle someday. Um, and yeah, there, we see cars from time to time that have sensors hanging off of them. And again, I think, again, folks who are really knowledgeable in this space can make educated guesses about who they are. Let me end where I began. Is it going to be another five years? I mean, how I live in Pasadena and I'm looking forward to the time that I can, uh, walk out to my driveway, pull out my phone and summon a driverless car to take me to work. What's your best guess? as to when I'll be able to do that. And we won't hold you to this. Um, I, I don't know about Pasadena. Um, <laughs> I think that, well, you know, again, it's, it's um, we have members of the public in our cars um, right now. Um, it, it's not fared. In other words, they're not paying for the rides. They're, um, they're basically an, a part of an early rider program. 
but we have people um, riding in our cars in San Francisco um, at certain times of day right now. Um, and our goal um, is to expand that pilot program to all of San Francisco 24 hours a day as soon as we can. And I don't think it's five years. I think it's less than that. Well, I guess it remains to be seen with all these cars learning the environment of the hills of San Francisco, how they're going to do in a flat place like Dallas or someplace like that. Yeah, the, 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 the tech tends to be pretty adaptable. I think once yeah. we, if we can get it working here, um, you know, there'll, there'll be some training that we'll need to do. There'll be, you know, some localization, I guess I'll, I'll use that word. But we, we're pretty confident that if we can get it working here, we're in pretty good shape. Well, thanks very much, guys. Uh, Lee, Charlie, thank you very much for participating in this uh, podcast. We very much appreciate it. It was very interesting. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Podcast Partners.